Topping Talks. Hundred and five hours a week, can't be beat. Welcome to Topping Talks. Topping Talks is a Topping Tribune production, and today's episode is proudly sponsored by Topping Technologies and ExpressVPN. Topping Technologies is an IT value-added reseller and services company with a special proficiency in security. Heck, I see their founder at least twice a day. I have to say he's quite handsome and brilliant. If you're a business in Texas and could use a hand, you can reach us at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Also, are you part of the 3.6% of Americans who still care about their privacy? If you are, then perfect ExpressVPN can assist. Even though 96% of stats are made up on the spot, ExpressVPN does guarantee their services via their 30-day back money guarantee. Now, without further ado, I'm proud to say I'm interviewing John Zepp, who is the current corporate senior inside sales manager at Red Hat. John, thanks so much for coming on the show, bud. Not a problem. Glad to be here. This is fun. Absolutely. It's been a couple of years since you and I first met at the trenches over at HPE and it's, inside sales. It's been a few years, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I know going back a few more years, even more, how do you first get into IT? You know, that's an interesting question. I, um, I didn't, never planned to be there. I, uh, I've got a degree in education and had done a number of different jobs. And I was in a sales role that was not technology related. And I ran across a friend of mine and he said, hey, we're doing a bunch of hiring over at IBM. You got some sales experience. Why don't you come interview? So I said, okay, nothing to lose. So I went and interviewed, got the job, started as an inside sales rep at IBM and was there for a number of years in a number of different roles. And that's how it all started. I knew nothing about technology, IT at all. I could barely turn a computer on oh, really? at that point. But IBM was okay with that, and they taught us how to do all of it. That's awesome. You know, IBM is one of the oldest, most diverse companies in history. Yep. I think they were founded in 1914 or... It, it's or, been a while. Yeah, it was a little bit earlier than that, like yeah. 1907 or something. Yeah, yeah. I just know they have the same birthday as me. <laughs> there you go. Yep. So I know such a big, diverse company. Where you when you first entered, were you focusing on you know mainframe or PC? I mean, what kind of IT were you first selling when you first joined the team? Yeah, great question. I um, I actually was part of a team called the competitive team, and so what we the companies we worked with were uh, customers that either had no IBM technology or just flat didn't like us. And so they gave it to us and we had the tough customers to call on. And we were selling pretty much everything. Mainframe was a little bit out of our league, but pretty much everything else, you know, software, hardware services, we were selling everything to those customers, at least trying to. Absolutely, so when you say out of the league or league or frame, so say, is it quote unquote smaller companies or just different technical standards or needs or? Yeah, that's what it pretty much came down to. Uh, most of the companies we were calling on were on the smaller end, you know, they called them S, you know, um, SMB. SMB at the time, yep. small right? medium so, business. Yeah, for the most part, that's who they we were talking to. Oh yeah, and then so you was it mainly the IBM desktop PC or no servers? Oh really? Okay. PCs, software, services, the whole thing. And that was before VMware, right? But when you had to have one server per application. That's exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> it may have only be running at ten percent capacity, but yeah, oh you had gosh. to have every. Every application had to have its own server. Yep. Oh my gosh! Imagine how many floors of servers you would have to have back in the day when it was one app yeah. per physical server. Yeah. <laughs> yep. There was one of the customers I was calling on that uh, that had this massive data center. They're here in Dallas. I won't name names because we just won't go there. No worries. Had this massive <laughs> data center in the basement of their building. And I forget how many servers. It was thousands of servers. Oh, my gosh. And uh, and they had a fire suppression system, mm -hmm. like every data center should. Oh, yeah. It was water-based. 
at one point in time, and they, you know, when it when it got a signal, it would fill all the pipes before it started sprinkling. Yeah. And fortunately, they caught it before it started spraying water. And soon after, they changed that. Obviously, that's not a good idea to have water <laughs> fire suppression on a data center because no. all that equipment would be ruined. The only good so, water in IT is water cooled. That's exactly <laughs> right. Exactly right. So I'm so, guessing they switched it over to traditional. It's not argon based. I know there's a special chemical yeah, dry yes. dry chemical compound they use for data centers. So that's correct. If something happens, they can extinguish it without destroying you know millions upon millions of dollars in IT hardware. That's right. Yep, that's right. <laughs> so that was a fun some fun conversations. What was the most difficult thing when you first joined IBM? And was there, and there was like a physical inside sales team locally, or did you have, I don't know, yes. they had virtual? Yeah, or? so it was, it was a team that was being built out um, here in Dallas. And at the time when I started, I think there was maybe 100 of us. By the time they finished building out the inside sales organization, there was four or 500. Oh, my God. Said, right? And so at one point in time, well, shortly thereafter, they, they built a building in Coppell and moved the whole inside sales organization to that building because there were so many people. Oh, right? wow. But I was kind of on the ground floor of getting into this thing and, and uh, building that out. So that was kind of fun. Is that building still around, if I chance? Out it is. The one in Coppell, yes. Really? Yeah. Do they, yep. Does IBM still own it? Or is yes. It? Yep. Oh. They're still working out of there. Really? Yep. I need, I need to drive past sometime. That's so cool. It's on Beltline Road. Oh, yeah. I've, I've done drop-offs in the area before. Yeah. I had to have seen it. Yeah. It's, a, it's not a small building. Yeah, it's is it, really large. Do they have their sign kind of secretive? No. Oh, no? Right it's there on the street. Yeah. How am I missing this? <laughs> you should pay attention. Yeah, I should. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of companies and a lot of data centers, you know, and security companies, they hide it so you don't even see the logo. Right. right. Like, there's a couple of restaurants, like corporate headquarters are in Plano. There's no way you know until after you enter the actual lobby of the rest or the uh, headquarters, and then you see their logo plastered everywhere. Right. <laughs> yep. Yep. And what was your favorite part about working at IBM? Probably um, the technology innovation, because there was always something new. And so I was constantly learning something. And I think that's kind of how technology works in general. Right. If you're not constantly learning, you're going to be left in the dust. And so I'm, I'm very curious. I love variety. And so it was learning something all the time and then doing something a little bit different every day because you never know what a customer is going to say when you're calling on them, right? So very true. So you kind of think on your feet and got to be smart and, and creative and, and you know, take a conversation different directions. And so that really appealed to me. I love that. I was going to say the best businesses are always innovating and going out and stretching themselves to try new things. No one That's wants right. to be Kodak. <laughs> That's Who, exactly right. Who's Kodak? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Who ironically created the bullet that shot them. I mean, they created and patented the digital camera before anyone else. Right. But they were so worried because they made a majority percent of their profit all came from film. film. Mm -hmm. So they knew if they put money in it and created it, it would have killed them. So yeah. they had a late start. They eventually had a good... A relatively good market share for digital cameras, but they didn't really profit off that bump in technology before it evaporated and transitioned to phones. Yeah, and I know they had the Microsoft Kodak, or no, that was I was thinking, I'm thinking of Nokia because there was a there's a camera company who partnered with a phone company, so they had like a 40 at the time really really great you know 40 megapixel camera. I do want to say it's Nokia, but my ADHD knows no bounds. I I, I could derail every conversation. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. But what was your favorite? Do you have a favorite customer or scenario? What's your favorite memory of you know working inside sales? Is there a win you really liked or something you had to overcome? Or what was it a career progression and how did that play out? You know, I think part of it was the people that I was able to meet. And so as an inside sales rep, I supported five or, I think it was five or six field account executives. And just getting to know those people 
and the way they thought, the way they sold, you know, how, how they worked with customers and watching that, that was probably my favorite part. Yeah. And that's, that's really been true most of my career. It's all about the people. True. Right? At the end of the day, people do business with people they like and they trust. So very true that is, I've learned that more than anything and just enjoyed the people that I work with. I've, I'm still friends with some of them today. But yeah. That was a long time ago. I'm just, I'm going to put years on it. But it was a long <laughs> yeah. time ago. <laughs> and then did you go from IBM to, was it Microsoft or yes. was that next major? Yes. Yeah. That was the next big jump. Um, in, in literally at my IBM, I was there for a number of years. I left for a few years to went for, went to work for an IBM partner and then came back to IBM. Oh, really? For another four or five years. And that second stint at IBM, I worked myself into a management role mm -hmm. and it was inside sales, but it was a management, you know, leadership role, yeah. which was a ton of fun. And then I had an opportunity to jump over to Microsoft because Microsoft was building out an inside sales organization. Yep. And I actually moved over as an in individual contributor, but again, worked myself into a management role. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that was, that was so much fun. I was in the healthcare division at Microsoft calling on customers across the kind of the Midwest mm -hmm. right, up in, you know, Michigan, you, uh, I, uh, Michigan, Indiana, Kentucky, you know, that, that kind of area. Did you enjoy it in contrast to, or what was the biggest difference? Cause I know, I mean, you're going from hardware or mainly hardware and then you're going to Microsoft, which is now they have a little hardware with the service lines, but right. it, majority is still software, it software is. as a service. Yeah. One of the things I liked about it and, and I realized when I was at IBM that the margins were getting really skinny on hardware and they're even yeah. skinnier today. Right. What, so what margins? Yeah, what margins, <laughs> if there's any. Yeah. So you, you take that move from a, mostly a hardware and services company to a software company, the margins are massive, right? And right. so two things, they're able to pay people more and they've got a lot more flexibility on what, how they do, what they do with a customer, whether, it, you know, we have discounts or, you know, moving stuff around, there's a lot more flexibility on those things. And so that was a ton of fun and software is make, what makes things happen. Hardware sure. just runs that stuff, right? Without, exactly. Without software, there's just a piece of metal, right? So yeah. software is what makes things happen. And I actually, part of my stint at IBM was in the software uh, arena as well. And so I've had some ex software experience, mm -hmm. but moving to Microsoft is just a whole different deal. Whole different deal. Oh, absolutely. And it's like you have, the, you have many hardware providers, but a lot of them use the same components and manufa component manufacturers is just to different specs. Right. So, I mean, it's all about the specs and then more importantly, the software you put on it that really provides the best solution. But I used to hear all the glory days of like working at EMC where you get that first job or first day at EMC, your the team will take you out. You put a down payment on Mercedes just because they knew you were going to make enough money to pay off that car and more that first year of sales. Right. Because again, they had the, they had the hardware, but really the EMC, the software. And at the time it was unparalleled in terms of storage competitors and technology that really made them a juggernaut, but even they got to the point where they were, you know, sold off or they sold to Dell to right. become, I think Dell now is the, the largest server manufacturer. I know that after the acquisition, they overtook HPE for the first time in 76 quarters, I think. Wow. It was pretty impressive, but you also, I mean, you're doubling the size, of, not doubling, but you're, Dell's a lot bigger after that acquisition and HP was right. moving towards value versus volume because, which is a yep. whole other interesting topic in and of itself. Absolutely, <laughs> yep, absolutely. Yep. But yeah, Microsoft, I, I still, it still blows my mind that there weren't enough competitors to make a quote unquote premium tablet or premium laptop to directly or more directly compete with Apple. Cause I mean, you have Dell, Lenovo and HP who make some, you know, make fabulous laptops, but no one really had that more unique single piece, you know, anodized aluminum or aluminum, or I guess the service book is magnesium 
none of them are really moving in that direction. And then Microsoft came up with a Surface Book, and I still use my Surface Book too. I love that thing. Yep. I mean, it's really versatile. I could, you know, rip off the tablet part when I'm doing some trainings on the couch or IT or, you know, use that nice keyboard, which I really wish Apple had the long distance or, you know, the longer distance travel for the keyboard. I totally agree with you. That's one of the reasons I love my Surface Book is because when I'm clicking and, you know, using the laptop, I can feel that distinct click and it goes down a couple millimeters or Apple, it's, it's a fraction of a hair when you're pushing on the key. Right. So, I mean, it's, right. it is very impressive. Apple, you know, is the thinnest thing on the planet, but I don't know. I'd, I'd be more open to Apple if they had that longer distance key travel. But Microsoft came out with the Surface Book and the Surface, and I mean, there's not really any competitors. HP had the HP tablets for a while. They fire sold that. I think when I first started HPE, and then the only competitor now realistically is probably Samsung with theirs. Uh, yeah, but, but that's a small player yeah, in that market. Exactly. Sure. I mean, yeah. so it really is, you know, Apple and Microsoft with the Surface. Yep. yep. So, but so we, when you were there, was it still a Microsoft 100% or, you know, mostly software at the time? Um, it was right at the end, uh, just before I left, they were they were launching the Surface. Um, so when I, you know, one of the things they did that was kind of cool is they gave everyone a Surface. Nice. It was the, I forget the processor on it. It was not the Intel processor. It was the other one. AMD? That, no, it wasn't an AMD. I forget what oh, it really? was, but it was it was not good. Let's just put it this way: it was not good. Yeah, right? <laughs> but they gave everyone to everybody, and then um, was it worse and, than the HP laptop we got? Mm, yeah, it was pretty bad. Right, it was yeah. pretty bad. Okay, um, it worked, <laughs> but it was so limited on what you could run yeah. on it. It didn't work so great. So you know, the regular Surface was fantastic. Yeah. I still have one today. Really, right? that works fantastic. I've had it for probably five or six years. It's great. It's awesome. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of the Surface. Yeah, they make some good stuff. I still need Absolutely. to, I'm still trying to spec out and get one myself to the Service Book 3 or try to justify that. It's like, because it'd be nice to go, of course, you know, go a little bit faster, be more efficient. Cause of course. That's what technology yeah. always does. Yep. <laughs> yep. By the time you get it, it's obsolete. Oh, so. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if Microsoft starts to make their own processors. Because I know Apple just, that was revolutionary, well, at the time revolutionary, where they said, you know, we're going to make our own processors in, in-house because they used Intel for, you know, 20 plus years, I think. It, yep. it was a long OEM relationship. And of course, if you're making the software and the hardware, there's more efficiencies you can build in. So Absolutely. I wouldn't be surprised if that's Microsoft's next step in hardware. Cause I think, yep. yeah, I think that'd be probably good for them long-term. There was noise about them doing that a few years ago, yeah. but I don't know where that ended up. So you're right. It's probably yeah. not too far down the road. And every day, I don't know. I, I still blows my mind that I, the Microsoft phone didn't jump off more for business users is a brilliant concept. It was and a great phone yeah. too. I loved that phone. I mean, right. it was great. Cause that, was that Windows 7 or 10 that was on the phone natively? Seven. Seven. And you just, you go straight from your phone to your PC is a, yeah. literally a brilliant idea. And they, I think they spent was it 11.2 billion on Nokia to buy the Nokia, um, the phone part of the company. It's funny. People think Nokia is just phones. It's like, no, they're oh. huge 5G infrastructure. Like, Phones are just a consumer product that people remember them because they made the bulletproof Nokia phone. Right. That, and Nokia sold more phones outside of the U.S. than yeah. any other phone company. Oh, yeah. Right? It was just in the U.S. <laughs> they were not the big player. Yeah. One of the a funny story about that, when, um, when Microsoft decided to launch the phone, they knew how many uh, Microsofties mm-hmm. right, had iPhones, exactly how many. And once they launched the new phone, they gave everyone a phone. They said... We know who has iPhones. We need. We expect you to switch over to the Microsoft phone, and we're tracking it. 
So they could pinpoint exactly who had an iPhone. Is this for employee, employees, employees or consumers? Okay, I was going to say, well, Not <laughs> consumers, not consumers, employees. Okay. They knew exactly how many people at Microsoft mm-hmm. had iPhones. Yeah. Right? At the time, I was one. Yeah. And then they gave me the Microsoft phone. I go, that's a no-brainer. Right? Yeah. So I got off that. But they were kind of tracking it and, in you know, a tongue-in-cheek kind of way mm-hmm. saying, you know, we know what you're doing <laughs> and you need to switch over as soon as possible because Microsoft is on your paycheck. Right? Yeah. So it was a, it was kind of interesting. I mean, no, I mean, very few really knew the potential of the iPhone when it first came out. Right. I remember it was the C. I forget his name, but the, the former CEO of BlackBerry when the iPhone first came out, he laughed derogatorily, and during an interview, he said two things stood out in his interview. He said, one, Americans will never pay more than I think he said five hundred dollars for a phone. That's ridiculous. They'll never do that. Right. And then he said, no one will ever pay for a phone with no buttons on it. <laughs> <laughs> and now that's you. pretty yeah. much the only phones you can buy that's right unless you're buying you know an apple or not apple a burner phone at you know walmart or target where it's a flip phone flip which phone. Yeah. are still great for certain applications <laughs> if you care about privacy or i guess for kids that'd be great too because right contrary to every parent i don't believe you need the internet at age six or whatever you totally agree. <laughs> totally agree with that yeah. so back in my days we walked Uphill both ways and use a payphone, and we worked out just fine. That's right. <laughs> Uphill both ways, barefoot, in the snow. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Built character. Well, that's yeah, right. That's in right. the Midwest. And once, right. he, you know, it was like every couple of years, the, the payphone would break, and the quarters would spit, spit out. <laughs> and it was like the lottery to me. Actually, I did I actually did the right thing, though. Because I guess the school doesn't care. They don't, someone else was making money off the phone. But, like, a friend and I, I, I were making a phone call on the payphone at school, and, you know, it broke, and, you know, quarters started coming out of the coin return tray. So I went to the receptionist. I go, hey, and one of my friends, he was already taking some of the money from it. I went to the receptionist goes, hey, this is broken. Can we take it? Or who, who owns this phone? Can I take it? And she's like, I don't care. It's not mine. I'm like, all right. There you go. Justification enough for me. Gotcha. <laughs> There's my allowance yeah, for the week. Exactly. That's like three, that's like three candy bars. That's, you know? right. that's right. That's good stuff. Yeah. So Find a, find a pay phone today. Oh, they exactly. don't exist anywhere. Well, maybe in podcast studios soon. I've, I don't know. I, I've got my heart on some vintage technologies just because... That'd be really cool. And actually, cool. so when yeah. I'm, I, um, as much as I'm growing the company, I'm still doing sales is still a big part of my role yeah. and I'll do a lot of pounding the payment. More and more of these companies are starting to use the, use the pseudo phone booths or privacy booths mm-hmm. where you could just walk in and you know, take phone calls, work on your laptop. I'm like, yeah. well, some technology is coming full circle. That's exactly right. Yep. Yeah. And everyone wants to be more eco-friendly. So they're going to be baking them out of wood again. So <laughs> it's like, yep. oh, yep. instead, you know, instead of the phone, they'll just have, you know, well, they probably won't have an internet check. They'll just have Wi-Fi in the lobby. That's right. But yeah, it's like, yeah, some technology just comes full circle. It's just, it does. Yep, yep. It's just a lot about timing, too, what comes next. <laughs> yep, that's the truth. That's and the the, truth. what inspired you to go from, was it uh, Microsoft directly to HPE? No, I actually, or? I left Microsoft to go work for a, a Microsoft partner. Oh, really? Um, and I realized very quickly that is not where I wanted to spend the rest of my career. So that only lasted about six months. What do you uh, like about it? I, I know it's a whole... Part the, of it, yeah. mostly, it was mostly culture, right? Really? Yeah, the partner I was working for, good partner. Mm-hmm. Um, they've since been bur- been bought by Connection, so they don't, you know, that particular partner doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. But the culture was very micromanagement. Oh. You know, we're going to tell you exactly what you do, when to do it. God. And it was awful. At that point, you know, I'm not, I'm not young now, and I wasn't yeah. young then. I'm going... That is yeah. not how I want to operate. So no. <laughs> six months in, I'm going, no, nah, I'm out. Yeah. I'm, I'm not doing that. Um, so I went off and I actually, this is crazy. I went and got my home inspection license. Oh, really? I said, I'm going to be a home inspector. Yeah. Did that for a little while, but that's a whole different animal. And we probably don't need to talk about that. But yeah. um, 
then then the HPE opportunity came around. So how do you first learn about that? Uh, you, you know, what's funny, they approached me. Oh, a really? recruiter reached out to me and said, hey, we're looking at your profile on, I think it was LinkedIn, and said, yeah. looks like you might be a good fit here. I said, okay, let's yeah. go. Right. So I did an interview. I, had, I interviewed with two of the directors, and oh, yeah. they said, oh, it's typically, uh, you know, seven to ten days. We'll get back to you with an answer. Yeah. The next morning, I had a call. Oh, they, damn. They made me an <laughs> so it was like, That's great. Obviously, I did well in the interview. Oh, yeah. Right? And, uh, and then that w- one of the great things about HPE for me was the opportunity to really hone my skills as a leader. And you were part of that. Yeah, right? I was going to say, that's so, when we first met. You were a manager. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I became your manager. Yeah. Right? You were on the, my first team. And I was, I was a, you know, a leader before that. Mm. But having the, the coaching and direction from my leaders at HBE really helped me hone my skills. Mm. And so the, the three plus years I spent there, I learned how to care for people, how to, you know, what's important for me as a leader when it comes to, to leading people, you know, caring for them and making sure they're getting paid right, making sure, yeah. you know, they're, you know, mentally they're, they're good and they you know, don't have any issues. Not that I'm a counselor, but yeah, you know, just making sure everybody's yeah. good and that they're not only are they doing the job, but are, do they have the tools to do it effectively? Are they getting yeah. the coaching to get really good at what they're doing and, and get better and better? So I look at that time at HPE while there were some challenges, there always is at every company, of course. but I was, I gave, I got the opportunity to just hone those skills and become a pretty solid leader, right? Um, yeah. You can attest you're, to I was going to say, you're was a, little, I a good you're leader. The, I don't know. Absolutely. But. You're one of the best. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of lead. Oh, there's a lot of managers. There weren't a lot of leaders, like when I was working there. Cause I know some of the managers, they did, they did zero coaching. Some of them, I would be fascinated to see how they justify their existence. But <laughs> I, it's just, cause some of them, they that. did not coach. They did not. They, they didn't add value to the teams, but you, you took time for one-on-ones. You would help coach us with cold calling, following up with customers, trying to find, you know, what are the actual business needs of the client, where they actually need. Cause like when, when they first started the HPE call center, I think we were technically business development uh, reps or BDRs. And right. all we did was, and not to talk smack, but it was just, you know, how it was. We just had a call sheet go, hello, Mr. America. How many servers do you have? Right. Are, are the servers old? Do you need more servers? And I mean, that's how it just was for the first, I think, six to seven months. And it's true. Yeah. Then we got, then they progressed us a little bit. But I mean, most of the coach, the most valuable coach I got was from you when we were working there. When I, as a really, I really started to focus more on how to put together solutions and how to really help people. And that's where, that's where the job was a lot more fun, too. I totally agree with that. That's the fun part of it, right? Oh, yeah. All the other stuff is like, I got to do that. But yeah. when you talk to a customer, help them solve a problem that's why we're there yeah right? absolutely and so i really helped i tried to focus on that and i still do to this day yeah right i very rarely call myself a manager i call myself a leader uh, but to be a leader you, you got to lead yeah right and you don't lead by saying hey go do this and tell them exactly what to do <laughs> yeah you enable them and then yep. empower them to go do that job and then oh, yeah. you watch and monitor and adjust right so oh, yeah. that's that's some of those things i learned at hpe that now I'm able to apply in the role I'm in today. I mean, that's why you had one of the best retention rates on the team or on the on the whole geo or I don't know what you ever want to call the yeah. Texas entity. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the other managers, they were just, you know, threatened, coercive, you know, hit your numbers or else, yeah. ye- yelling, being pejorative. I mean, I think of my wave, I think there's two people left who, who stick around over – Within three years, there were six people left, and with four or five years, there's like two or three people left. I mean, 
Yeah. There's a lot. And especially in DFW, every tech company is opening up an office here, especially in sales. And Correct. I mean, it's just more and more customers aren't buying servers. So that, that business is kind of devolving or more of an ingress. Yep. So, I mean, I know HPE still has, you know, storage, Synergy, GreenLake, Synergy, Cloud, whatever buzzword you want to use. But they still have some good things going yeah. on. Um, it's, it's a different company than when you when I were there. That's so true. That's all, all there is to it. <laughs> One of the things that, um, you know, you, you, you talked about the lack of attrition right, yeah. that I had, which was amazing. Um, one of the things that I made a decision early on in my leadership uh, roles was that uh, a, a PIP or a performance improvement plans, oh, yeah. those were stupid, right? Oh, yeah. And so in well, my entire career as a leader, mm-hmm. I've done one. Yeah. And it was in my first leadership role at IBM. It was a guy I'd known for a lot of years, mm-hmm. just wasn't performing, put the PIP in place. Unfortunately, we let him, you know, let him go. Yeah. But at that point, I realized that is not how you improve performance. No. I mean, you improve performance through coaching, right? And exactly. so that is the only PIP I've ever done in my entire leadership career. Oh, wow. Regardless of what else was going on, that is yeah. the only one I've ever done. And if I finish my career and never do another one, I'm totally good with that because I think yeah. it's counterproductive. Right? Absolutely. Agree. You, I- you, you put somebody on a PIP, the next thing you know, they're gone. Of right? course. So why not yeah. just fire them? Why waste the time? I mean, right? it, if you're going to let them go, yeah. just let them go. Why waste the time with that? Right. Well, I think we both know why. Legal. I know. Unfor- I totally unfortunately, that, like, right? I totally get that. Right. So have I had poor for performers over the years? Of, of course. course yeah. Right. So you you coach them to either improve or help them figure out what's next for them. Yeah. Right. Oh, absolutely. And, and maybe it's out of the company. Maybe it's another role in the company. But oh, yeah. you know, a pip is. Ridiculous, in my opinion. Oh, the, I mean, for the end user, for the person receiving it, there is zero value. Because well, especially right. especially at HPE, now, granted, they're not like, they may not be this, like it this way, but for decades, a PF was just illegally is for you knew you were going to get fired. Yeah. Because I've known a lot of people that are put on the plans. I was threatened to be put on one when I worked at Aruba. Uh, spoiler alert. But <laughs> it's, just a, it's just one of those things where of all the all the people that I know, one person who has actually successfully hit that plan and hit the metrics in the plan to keep their job. And for some reason, and that person actually kept working there for a while until they had a new manager, the new different style they didn't agree with. But yeah. it's just, it's not about coaching or making them better. It's basically, and the numbers they give you, you're not going to hit it. Cause I've, I've yeah. talked to the people and I, you know, you look at the numbers, it's like, no, cause there's no way. Yeah. Like I know an engineer and and for those who don't know, engineers are technical. They don't cold call or no. His performance plan had cold calling on it. <laughs> that <laughs> so makes no like, sense. Exactly. So yeah. I always tell people like when you're having you know your monthly one on ones or weekly one on ones with your manager, if it's a good manager, they will tell you where you're not hitting your marks and how you could be doing better. They don't wait until you know once a year or once a quarter. Go, oh yeah, here's a pip. Or here's a performance plan. Right. Um, you better hit it or you're gone. Right. And I mean. As soon as you get that plan, everyone is looking for another job immediately. Well, and that's and you mentioned it. That's the difference between a manager and a leader. Agree, right? A manager manages the ask the, the activities and the details like that. Yeah, a leader helps their people be successful. Oh, absolutely. Right? It's all about giving those giving them those tools to help them grow, hit those metrics, and you know that's have a long term right. successful career. Yep, totally agree. Oh, yeah, and. Totally it is fascinating to see all the tools that evolve over the years in sales. I remember when we first started at HPE, I was a big fan of the physical Avaya phones. Mm-hmm. And I was one of the only person who ever beat me. Well, more often than not, I had the top dials per week. The only person that ever beat me 
funny enough, his name, uh, Ben Dials, D-I-L-E-S. I remember Ben. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't know that was his real name until like six months <laughs> in. I was like, that's your real name? That's, that's perfect. <laughs> Good fit, yeah. Yeah, but we just hammered through those phone calls. But I don't know, it's, that, that quickly faded away the soft phones. And now you have even better software. It's where it'll auto-dial it for you. And it won't actually bother you until a customer prospect click, you know, picks up the phone actually and starts talking. Yep. So it is fascinating to see all the different tools that keep evolving and make people really making everyone's jobs easier too. Right. That's absolutely right. Oh yeah. So I know a lot more, a lot of folks these days are using LinkedIn, which is one of the smartest acquisitions in IT history. I mean, Microsoft, that was clever because oh yeah. as soon as they bought it, I knew they were going to turn it into Facebook with, because um, when H, that was a good rep, the one that, were you there when the HP um, purchased uh, LinkedIn Navigator, LinkedIn Premium for inside sales? Yep. That rep at, uh, that rep at LinkedIn was pretty happy. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he knocked it out of the park. That's a big sale. Oh, yeah. yeah. and But I knew, like, during the initial on, onboarding of the technology presentation, because before that, for folks who don't know, LinkedIn is basically a resume where you talk about your, you know, different things. But when they did the sale at HPE and we started to use it, they introduced us to the new feature called the like button and post. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that was all, that's all, that's all it took to turn it into Facebook for professionals. And which much, yeah. is what it is, which. Pretty much, which, of course, from a business perspective, is brilliant because you update your resume on average maybe once or twice a year. But if it's a social media thing, you could talk about your achievements and all the other things. You're going to use that daily. That's right. Which that means their marketing dollars are that much more valuable, and they can sell those LinkedIn subscriptions for that much more because prospects and everyone is using it. So correct. It's it's very logical, and I was I was actually surprised Facebook maybe is maybe a uh, antitrust, but Facebook I don't think they made an offer for the company. Hmm. I don't yeah, believe about that. But apologies again, my ADHD, the worst. <laughs> if it has to do with business, I will find a tangent to get there. Yeah, there you go. I'll reel it back in. <laughs> exactly. So about reel HPE. Yeah. So that was a very interesting time. Yeah, I know that was during the Aruba acquisition we were working there. So that was a probably the, again, probably, or maybe the second smartest IT acquisition in history. You had the separate, still to this day, separate CEO, separate headquarters, separate culture. So Aruba is still nimble and fast. So that was a very good acquisition that, Definitely helped me out covering the Midwest when we were, you know, cold calling all those accounts and of course, trying to you, add more you've value. You got an in at that point. Uh, ex- exactly. They've already got some HPE <laughs> stuff, right? Oh, it's perfect. So, exactly. Oh, yeah. And then what was your favorite thing? I know there's a lot of great things about HPE. What's kind of the, what was your favorite memory about there? Either experience or just. You know, it's the, and I still to this day, I remember it. The, my very first day, I was um, introduced to my team. Mm-hmm. Right, we they, they were it was a big team. It was like I don't know, fourteen, fifteen oh, yeah. people, and my the previous manager was still at HPE. John, you remember John? Oh, and yeah. the they, old John. Yeah, the old John. He he came in. You know, he was there and he was saying, "Hey, your, your new manager's coming in, and we'll do a quick introduction." So I came in, talked a little bit about me, and then literally just opened up to questions. Yeah, and you know, most of the team fired something at me. Yeah, and there were two people in that room that. I will never forget. They had very pointed questions, and I looked at those two, and I go, "Okay, those are the two that I've got to win over." Because you can <laughs> yep. tell they didn't like the idea of me coming in as a manager. I right? remember that day. Yeah, you so, remember that day? Yeah. Right? So, so for, for folks who don't have a lot of background on the, I guess a little background on the HPE situation, they were building out the new inside sales org, and they made the decision because we, the inside sales team, had been there for one to two years, and they didn't promote a single person internally. So they were bringing all the external talent and people are starting to get fed up because they're they're promised certain career paths and progressions that weren't being hit. So that's why they were a little more uh, abrasive to the idea of more external talent coming to the company at the time. Well, and that was when they were moving it from 
Conroe, Arkansas. Yes, that to was Plano. Right, a, that's a huge move. And, oh, and yeah. part of the part of that was the talent pool in. Oh, it was Conway, not Conroe. Conway, oh, yeah, you're right. Conway, right. Arkansas. Uh, not as many people there that want to work for HPE, so they moved it to Plano. Yeah, huge talent pool. Absolutely. Right? And so when they did that, they expanded from I don't know how many people were in Conway to hundreds of inside sales reps yep. at HPE. When I was hired, I was in a wave that actually had 127 people, right? They had oh. to separate it into two, yeah. but we all started on the same day. Yeah. So that wave of, of hires had like 120-some people. It was crazy, right? Yeah. And I look back now, who knows how many are still left, but that was pretty typical right then. Not many. They were hiring <laughs> these huge groups of people, oh, yeah. um, and 99% of them, uh, maybe that's a bold number, but yeah. most of them were... Fresh college hires, right out of oh, college, of first job, yep. that kind of deal. Moved from all over the country to, to Plano, Texas. Oh yeah. So it was a it was an interesting model how they played it out. Yeah, so yeah. there was all kinds of opportunity to to learn and grow and develop. And there's still a few people there that I go, okay, that that person really figured it out. Oh, yeah. And they've charted a great path. Oh, and they're still hanging out. Oh yeah, I can't help but think your coaching had a lot to do with Kyle's success too, uh, Kyle Glenn Denning, because he's. Climbed up that corporate ladder pretty impressively he has, too. Yeah, and he's doing great work over there. So oh, yeah. yeah, he's he's a really good guy and. I, he was, you know, you and he were probably my two favorite on that team. Oh, aren't you nice? <laughs> no, and it's just because I, you know, you guys worked your butts off. Oh yeah. Right. You didn't cause me grief. Oh yeah. And you listened. <laughs> you co you were coachable, right? That's yeah. that's huge, right? For a leader, that's huge. You know, oh, yeah. somebody that is really smart, works their butt off, and listens when when somebody talks to them, that's a pretty big deal. I might, so, I might be, easy. I might be two of the three. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but no, I remember like when we had the Aruba blitzes, people said I cheated because like. Because I don't, I don't like to sleep. So like the night before, like I had the lead list, so I actually filtered it to get rid of the subway restaurants that were on the list, which yeah. they're not headquartered in Iowa, so I can't sell to them. Right. And then I also got there an hour early and I worked through lunch because I don't believe in taking lunches if I'm you know working. Yeah. So like they, especially he got, on a yeah, blitz day. Exactly. So yeah. like, topping got you know two extra hours. I'm like, no one stopped you from cold telling. You can do that too. And yep. I remember I was so I was so uh, aggressive. I had, as soon as because the goal of the day was to you know. Get a customer on the phone, then hand the customer, if they got on the phone to talk and they were willing to take a call with Aruba, we'd have them on that phone call. As soon as I got that happened, I would just make extra cold calls for my cell phone. Yeah. Even though those weren't counting on the auto, the you know, the metrics list, I would still get people on the phone. And I'd be like, all right, let me transfer you as soon as we're done with that. Yep. And that was actually how one of the ways it got promoted from uh, HPE to, uh, to Aruba field sales. Yeah. You, you worked harder than anybody else. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe still today you work harder than anybody else. Debatable. <laughs> <laughs> in those days, you you set the you set the bar pretty high. Oh, yeah, 105 hours a week can't yep. be beat. <laughs> yep. There you go. But yeah, I'm still paranoid to this day about the uh, safe or safety, uh, well, safety and integrity of laptops. Because I remember the laptop I was using broke like two or three times. Mm. It was just the OEM Toshiba spinning SS, spinning SSD inside the laptop. Yeah. So that, to this day, I always ask customers and myself, "How are you backing that data up?" <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's huge. Your lesson learned. I guarantee you, 95% of people don't do it. Oh, or right. test their backups. It's like, oh, crap. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yep. It's like, that's one of the most common common questions and the common answers you get. It's like, when was the last time you tested it? Well, never, or maybe once last year. It's like, well, right. Right. 
Yeah, uh, test them a little more often. Than yeah, that. Exactly. It's like going to the gym. You want to make sure it's working pretty well. That was another nice thing. The I still th- it was it was a little older, but I thought it was beautifully nostalgic. The fifty four hundred Legacy Drive uh, old EDS headquarters oh, yeah, we worked it was in. A great building. Yeah, it was yeah. amazing. I'll show you the uh, my office. I actually have one of the old EDS plaques in there because they were gonna throw that out during yet another renovation. Yeah, and just broke my heart to see so much of business history because they, I mean, EDS and that building built Plano. There's nothing here. It it was just, was, when that was built, there was nothing out there. Yeah. Yeah. It's just literally just fields. Yep. <laughs> That's exactly right. And then getting back to my ADHD, when going from HPE, which is more of a hardware manufacturer, what inspired you to get back to the software? Um, what inspired Because there's a lot of companies you could work for, uh, of course. Yep. What, what made you choose or what inspired you to join Red Hat? Because they're a pretty unique uh, software company. They're a very unique co- software yeah. company. Well, and, and it comes back to that one thing I mentioned about that partner. Yeah. It comes down to culture, right? True. So I did a lot of research on Red Hat before before I pursued them. Yeah. Right? So I pursued an opportunity at Red Hat prior to leaving HPE. Mm-hmm. I ca- came down to me and one of their internal, hi- internal candidate. Mm-hmm. They went with the internal candidate, which was fine. I totally get that. But I went through the entire process, got to, you know, interview with the VP. So it was great to get to that point. Yeah. So I learned a lot. I made a good impression. Excellent. Right? I didn't get it. Okay, fine. I had a job. I didn't worry about it. Yeah. Well, the next time I saw a role open up at Red Hat, I reached back out to the same people I talked to. and said, hey, I saw this role. I'm a really good fit for that. We ought to talk. So sure enough, they said, yes, you're absolutely right. So they scheduled an interview with, and this is a long story, but I'll come back to it. Um, they scheduled an interview with the director, one of the directors that I spoke to the, the last time. Mm-hmm. And he gets on the phone and he said, John, this is not an interview today. You impressed us last time we talked, so I'm just going to give you some hints and tricks about the final interview that I'm moving you to, and we'll schedule that in the next few days. So he and I talked for 15, 20 minutes. He gave me a couple of ideas, you know, what the role is, the team, how that's being built out. And I said, cool, right? So then I had the interview with the hiring manager, and it went really, really well. Seven days later, I had an offer, right? So, Excellent. But, but it, it comes back to that culture thing. You look mm-hmm. at Red Hat, there's not a company like it. Sure. Um, the culture is such that, you know, it's, they call it open, right? So yeah. open source, but there's a lot more about open than just the software, right? And how it's built. Uh, one of the things that I love about Red Hat is that all the leadership are completely open. I can reach out to the CEO and have a conversation if I want to, right? That's very unique. It is very unique, right? And so when they make decisions, it's, they get a ton of feedback from the company. Yeah. And the, the phrase is, Everyone gets a voice, but not everyone gets a vote, right? So yeah. they want to hear what what the people at the company think about whatever decision they're trying to make. Mm-hmm. Does that slow things down a little bit? Yeah, mm-hmm. but, but what you, the benefit is everybody's bought in, right? Because they've had their opportunity to give some yeah. input. So that kind of thing has really been cool. The other thing that I love about Red Hat is the fact that innovation and technology today is happening in open source. Sure. Right? When you look at how that's done, that's where things are going to be quick and you know nimble and things changing. And so that whole concept is amazing. And so those two things really are the, the driver that said, that is a company I want to work for. Um, if they'll keep me, I'll be there the rest of my career yeah. because I love that about Red Hat. Are things changing? Yeah, things always change in a company. But that piece, that culture and that innovation is staying the same. And I love it. 
that's astronomical. Just having that ability to reach out to whoever you want. Because one of the things that kills a lot of big companies, such as automotive, we won't say who, but right. it's just the bureaucracy slows you down and it just doesn't have a cohesive feeling to it. You just don't feel as valued when you, of course, I say of course, but I guess it's not that obvious because a lot of companies don't have it set up that right. way. And, you know, <laughs> somebody with a, you know, ivory tower somewhere makes a decision oh, yeah. and funnels down may have no value whatsoever to, you know, the customer base. But somebody somewhere made a decision and said, this is what we're going to do without, you know, consulting anybody that's on yeah. the front lines, right? That's not how Red Hat works. Like making the Corvette an automatic only. There you, there you go. Prime <laughs> example, right? Somebody made a decision. Yep. Did they talk to their customers? Probably not. No. Right? Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. But yeah, and that's, that's one of the great things about Red Hat is everybody's involved in what's going on in the company and the direction and what's happening. It's not, you know, a top-down leadership kind of uh, mentality, which is really awesome it's so much fun plus you kind of come full circle you started working for ibm and now red hat is owned by ibm, has owned by <laughs> IBM. And, you know it's it's interesting that you mentioned that the you know I, the years that i worked for ibm they acquired a bunch of companies mm -hmm. and and even since then acquired a bunch of companies the the difference between those acquisitions and the red hat acquisition is that when ibm acquired a company you know up until that point mm -hmm. they did it for one of two reasons typically one is they wanted the customer base, right? Yep. So they, they bought the customer base, or they wanted the technology. Well, if they if they did it for those one of those two reasons or both of them, they would take the technology, they'd integrate it into something they're doing, yep. or they take the customer base and they would integrate it in what they're doing. That company ceased to exist. Yes, right? it went away. That's right. Um, with Red Hat, they looked at what Red Hat was doing, the culture, how they operated, the trajectory that that Red Hat was on. Oh, yeah. They said. We're not going to mess with that. We want Red Hat to operate independently. They've got their own CEO, board, all of that. Excellent. They're going to own by IBM, but they're going to operate like Red Hat has their entire history. Brilliant. And so they're going to leave it alone. And that's pretty much how it played out. When I first started looking at that, that was my first question. Yeah. How was that acquisition going to impact how Red Hat does business? Mm -hmm. And I was assured by everyone I talked to because I asked every one of them that question. After. They all said, it's good. Red Hat is going to operate independently. That's the commitment from IBM. We should have no issues. And it's, for the most part, played out that way. Every once in a while, you see a little bit of IBM influence. But yeah. in general, Red Hat is Red Hat and really hasn't changed a lot from the acquisition. That's the best way to do it. I, that brings the list of successful IT acquisitions to like one or two or two to three. Yeah. I know HPE and Aruba, Kirti, the co-founder of Aruba, was very specific in his negotiating where he said, hey, we will... Always have a separate fiscal headquarters, separate leadership, separate support. So even though it's an HPE company, it's still very independent, nimble, or nimble. Ironically, I say nimble because when I, HPE I bought a, <laughs> when HPE bought Nimble, the storage company, they quickly took that technology, put into all their hardware, and there's exactly. no more Nimble team. Yep. So which is traditionally how most businesses do acquisitions. You're Correct. Yeah. Usually buying intellectual property, making your own products better, or increasing your customer base, and yep. So it's interesting to see how some acquisitions make total sense and they work out great. Well, I mean, the history books are filled with ones that, you know, backfire or nearly bankrupt the company or right. it, it just doesn't work out. And one of the big things is I mean, culture, which is, yes. I was very impressed. Still very, it's very interesting that Dell and IBM, or sorry, Dell bought out EMC because of such, they had such different cultures and technologies. So it's very interesting to see that work out. And of course, you know, Dell got the, the diamond in the rough, of course, being VMware. Right. That's right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And then what's, because with, with the, 
Red Hat experience. Is this the, is this the first time you've led a 100% virtual team with Unsent Sales? Yes. And it was, wow, what a difference. Yeah. So um, when I got hired, it was during the pandemic, right at the start, April of oh, yeah. uh, 2020. 2020 yeah. Right. And all of my team was hired at, the, at that same time frame. Right. So we were all hired remotely. All of the onboarding was remote. Everybody's working from home. That was a complete different experience for me. Right? Every job that I'd had in IT before that, I was going into an office pretty much every day. Now, yeah. when I was a field seller, obviously you, you don't get in the field. office every yeah. day, but you know, every other role, I was going in the office every day. So now I'm in a scenario where, okay, I've got to lead this team that is all remote and I'm remote. How do you do that? Because that's a whole different thing. Yeah. And at the time, I, it, was, it was a challenge. Right? I just you know, beat my head against the wall. How do I do this? Right, I'm so used to seeing face, people face in the office and all the, the benefits you get of being in the office and that synergy. And now, how do you do that? How do you replicate that? And yeah. that's really hard to replicate, obviously. But there was a few things that I tried to do to make sure that we, had, we, we came together as a team right? and we were, we were cohesive and we all understood what we're here to do. I would make, you know, enablement was huge and then empowerment was even more important. One of the things that a lot of companies have done because of COVID is they, everybody went remote. They were all inside sellers at that point, right? Everybody (laughs) And, but they, they didn't empower their people to go do the job effectively, Mm -hmm. right? They micromanaged and we were, you know, looking at everything they did. Every metric. And, and, you know, looking over their shoulder constantly. Well, no one likes that. No. Especially sellers. Sellers are <laughs> the type of personality where just let me go do my job, leave me alone, and I'll yeah. be fine. Right? <laughs> if I need to change something, let me know that, and I'll go change it. Yeah. Right? But, but don't tell me exactly what to do every minute of every day. And so it didn't work. And a lot of companies have figured that out. And one of the reasons that a lot of companies are pushing everybody back to the office, right? They oh, had yeah? a hard time managing them. Well, I had to make those adjustments. It took a while, but a couple of things I did that really paid off were... Um, when we could get together, mm-hmm. we would get together. Might be for a lunch, might be for just, you know, in a conference room where everybody was, you know, a long ways away, but mm-hmm. we could see each other face to face. So are most of the reps in, at least in Texas or are they throughout? Because how at, hard is it logistically to yeah. bring that team together physically? At that point in time, they were all here. Oh, okay. Right? So that yeah. was good. At least they were all here in DFW. Yeah. Right. And so we worked through all of that. One of the things that I did, and, and I think I was doing it when I was leading your team, was the huddle, right? We yeah. did a huddle every morning, yes. remember? Yeah. Um, I, I, I did it. that. It was obviously virtual. We were on you know, on a video call, yeah. but we did a huddle. And it was just a few minutes, but it's like, hey, let's let's get together. It's, it's fun yeah. and a little inspiration, a little rah-rah. I'm not a big rah-rah guy, but yeah. we talked about some fun stuff, and I would typically throw a quote out or yeah. some something funny or whatever, right, just to get that synergy but, going, right, and get them started to. with the morning. We did first yeah. thing every morning. So that was one of the things that I continued, even though we were all remote, mm-hmm. right? Let's do, let's figure out what it is that we, we can do together. Yeah. And then another thing that we did that was, it was really not very easy, but we figured it out is how to do an event as a team when we're all remote. Yeah. Right. So we did a, we literally did a, uh, what's the company? Painting with a twist. Oh yeah. Remote. What's that? Right? So painting with a twist, the way that works is, um, they've got a, a, an artist that shows you how to paint a particular picture. And so during COVID, they would send out the whole kit. So you get your canvas, you get the paints, you get the brushes, everything you need to, to do this painting. 
And then the, the artist, the instructor, was on a video call. And so they would walk you through each step of that, and the whole group was there you know, on this video call doing their paintings. So it worked out really well. That's brilliant. But it is brilliant. Yeah. Really challenging, but it oh, worked yeah. out really <laughs> well because, you know, those events, those team building kind of things are really, really important. Agree. And during COVID, that was really hard to do. So that kind of thing is some of the things that we did to just try to you know, make sure we, we came together as a team, right? And built, I have some and built that cohesiveness. Yeah, I have some experience together because I know one of the things people, most people dread in corporate America are, you know, meetings that just talk about, Mm, debatably unimportant stuff. So like that was a nice thing about like having the team huddle with you when I was working at HP is you made it fun and interesting and more inspirational than the bland, you know, monotone voice that so many people have, so many people seem to use throughout my career. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> and, you know, you could very easily go, Hey, you need to do this, 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 and this today. Yeah. And we did a little bit of that, but it was, yeah. it was more we, just you always have have to, some fun together. You always right? have to have some metrics. I mean, yeah, <laughs> right. These are the things to focus on today. Yeah. You know, just a couple things, but, Let's have some fun too. Yeah, absolutely. Have some blitzes, have some spiffs or prizes. I mean, yep. it's all about building that fun culture. And I can't imagine. So what, what are some other maybe tricks of the trade that you have learned that enabled you more with working as a team remotely? Is is it awkward? Or does it kind of just feel the same when you're doing like a one-on-one or doing like a ride-along? You know, it, it really is no different. Really? It, yeah. it really is no different. I do one-on-ones with everyone on my team every week. Excellent. It's it's video. Yeah. And yeah. and if, you know, for whatever reason, they got some reason not to be on video, that's fine. We just have a conversation. Yeah. Um, but in general, they're video. Mm-hmm. Um, I am very rarely not on video, mm-hmm. right? I do that every call. I, I'm typically visible. Same. Um, and, and so that kind of stuff continued. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I... F- I yeah, again, it's it's people build relationships face to face in person. Yeah. That's how they start. You can build a relationship remotely; it's just harder, right? Agree. But once you see someone face to face, that makes all the difference in the world. I agree. Right? And so, as much as much we could do that, we did that. And as things kind of, you know, there was different waves in COVID, as you well know, oh, yeah. right? As it kind of tapered off, we said, okay, let's let's go have a lunch together, yeah. right? Let's get do together, this together, right? Yeah. Go do some things. Um, and we were all very careful about it. You know, yeah. it, it, sometimes it was just me and two other people, mm-hmm. right? We couldn't have the whole team together, but I can take a couple of people. We can sit across the yeah. table and wear masks there and the whole thing. Yeah. And so that kind of stuff was really, really important in that whole process. Absolutely. And it is, it is funny. A lot of people say, you know, things are, some things are harder back in the day. Some things are easier back in the day. I mean, cold calling, I feel like cold calling had to be a lot harder back in the day before you had, you know, video calling and LinkedIn to really put a face to the name. Yeah. So even though, I mean, I guess, you could argue the pickup rates were higher back in the day. I think the conversations are easier now because you already have some background with them. Because everyone's, you know, if you have a meeting with someone or there's always some background research you do because you want to know the person. So right. it's kind of like, and especially with social media, it's really weird because it's, depending on what you're doing in social media and your career point and what you do for a living, people already have a very well sense of who you are. Like professional comedians a lot of people feel like they know them personally because their whole job and their whole life is on social media. They're always advertising their tour dates, their personality, their quirks and features. So yeah. it really is a bizarre sense of society where we can get to know someone without ever meeting them. Right. That is true. That is absolutely true. And is, if you don't mind me asking, is your team embracing the meta universe and having you know meetings inside there yet? Or have you bought real no. estate in there? No, <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Uh, maybe at some point. I don't know. But yeah. no, not yet. We're, not, we're not playing there yet. Oh. Yeah. One of the things that um, 
I think has made a huge difference for the team I'm managing now, which is different than when I started at Red Hat, because now my team is spread all over the country, right? I've got, oh, wow. I've got people from Tampa, Florida to San Francisco, right? Because I've got the entire country. And how many people is that? Just 15. I got 15. Yeah. Right. So it's a big team. Oh, yeah. And so we're spread all over the place. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I've worked really hard at that has been a huge challenge for a lot of leaders re- leading remotely is trusting your team. Right. Yep. So the way I position it is this. I hired a professional. Mm-hmm. I'm going to enable you, and then I'm going to empower you to go do your job. Yep. I don't care how many hours a day you work, mm-hmm. get the job done. Right? Yep. If there's a challenge with hitting numbers or whatever, we're going to have conversations about that. Of course. But I'm not going to check how many hours you're working every week, yep. nor am I going to check when you're working. Right? Mm-hmm. If you want to work from you know, eight to one and take a couple hours and go do something with your kid mm-hmm. and then come back and work a few more hours in, you know, the late afternoon, early evening. I'm totally good with that. Yeah. Right. And you don't have to tell me. Yeah. So it's that empowerment piece that I think is make it makes a world of difference when you're managing a remote team. Absolutely. That's it's hard, but true. you got to look at it this way. And, and, and I, I position it with everyone I talk to. I hire professionals. I'm going to treat you like a professional until you give me reason not to. And as a professional, I expect you to manage your time effectively. That's one of the things that the team and I back in the day really respected about you because a lot of the other managers at HP, you know, day one, they did not treat you anything more than a rudimentary child. I mean, they were just, there's a lot of babysitting there. I even remember there's one point where they were t- using a stopwatch for your bathroom breaks. I was like, geez, Louise. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. that You were yeah. gone by then, though. Yeah. yeah. It, those are interesting times. Yeah. Those were weird times. Yeah. yeah. Those, those would be, you could do a whole podcast series on those stories alone, That's but true. <laughs> another time That's and true. day. There was, a, there was a friend of mine that, that at the time worked, um, well, for EDS before. Oh, yeah. What did they you know, do? Before that, I forget what they were doing, but yeah. EDS. But when, when she found out that I was going to work at HPE and what I was doing, she yeah. said, Oh, you're going to work in the playpen. Yep. Going, well, that's not a good thing, I don't think, right? <laughs> but it's true. There was a lot of babysitting going on, depending on who you were and what group you were in and yada, 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 right? So. Oh, yeah. And H- I mean, EDS, I mean, God, it's such a great culture. You know, back in the day, they were the Google of Texas. I mean, yeah, huge employer, unparalleled benefits. I mean, yes. I still miss the HPE days where I know they changed even when I was working there. But and at the time in inside sales, if I wanted to see a doctor and they had one on site, the copay was five dollars yeah which is nothing yeah it's like and they had a they had a drugstore yeah CV, in the CVS. in the building yeah. so if you needed aspirin or whatever a, it was right there in the building it's discounted because yeah summer spoiler alert or it's out there now but it's a customer exactly <laughs> yeah yeah so it's just one of those things where and they even actually had you know an on-site golf course they had a car repair shop on site too i did not with, know with that. a gas station it, oh, that's cool. i read a couple yeah. books on eds and it's fascinating what Ross Perot was able to build at at the time. It was such a revolutionary concept. And of course, he benefited exponentially from it and made a hell of a dent in the universe. I mean, EDS is legendary. They sponsored the Olympics. I mean, oh yeah, they were huge. And then in the end of the day, they, they, of course, kind of go back to what we were talking about culture and bureaucracy. They got, many would say too bureaucratic, got sold off to GM, didn't help. Um, I remember one of the books that was written about EDS. There's mantra used to be you know, ready, aim, fire. And then when they were acquired by GM, it was ready, aim, aim. They never, <laughs> they never pulled the trigger. Never pulled the trigger. Yep. So then they got That's spun true. off again. So they were independent. And that, uh, the brass coasters I have in the living room are actually the EDS. And it's got the engraved, it says an independent company because they were so proud of that fact. Right. And again, kind of going back to full circle, they sold out to HPE. And that's, you know, 
how they built out the original Texas Inside Sales team was at the one of the data centers we worked in there for about six months. Then we got to the 5400 old headquarters. And right, yeah, it's fascinating. Now I believe I think DXC is out completely. Actually, they are. Yeah. So I don't know who's in that legendary building now, but the the story we heard is that um, someone bought it, a developer bought it, and they were going to turn it into a big hotel. Yeah, I heard they're going to tear yeah. down a bunch of the wings, mm-hmm. and that that main building was going to be a hotel with some stuff built onto it. Sad. I don't think that ever happened, but that was the no. story anyway at the time. I remember the last sticker because you look at the windows when I was you used to visit the HP Inside Sales at the time. It said like a next next bank or next gen. So there's a couple of companies working with it. But if you have a like three hundred thousand dollars, you could rent you know a couple floors out there <laughs> per, per year if you want. No, I think it's per month. It was a lot. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, the poor building needs a code. I'm surprised. It should be a historical monument, I think. I mean, it built the city, but I'm somewhat, I'm very business nostalgia, obviously, but yep. Yep. it was just amazing to see what that company was, you know, back in the day. It was Absolutely. just, it changed the world. No question. No question. Yep. Yeah. Now, yep. What do you like to do outside of the office? So, uh, I, you know, I got a lot of things going on. Um, one of the things that I love to do is I love to play golf. Yep. So I've got a group of guys I play with every Saturday, and I've known some of them for 20 plus years. Oh, wow. Several of them I worked with at IBM no way. Uh, in my first IT job. And uh, and so we kind of kept in touch over the yep. years, and now we play golf together on Saturday. So that's that's one of the things I do. Um, the other thing that I do that, I don't know, maybe it's crazy, but it's but it's therapy for me, is I restore yeah. old vehicles. That's awesome. Right? So I'm on my sixth restoration, and it, it depends on where they are in the, in the process, but mm-hmm. What I what I love about doing that is the troubleshooting and the and the problem solving because in a restoration like a home remodel same kind of thing I did some of that for a while um, you never know what you're going to get into until you get into it right? you start tearing something apart and you go oh that's not good I got to fix that and then, oh I got to do that and so it just it, it snowballs to a certain extent but it's that you know how do I solve this problem right mm-hmm. someone did something to this at some point in time. It doesn't make sense. I don't know why they did it, how they did it, but it's it's not necessarily right. I've got to fix that. How do I do it? And so I love that problem solving, working through, hey, I could do it this way. I could do it this way. What's the right way? You know, do I get advice? Do I just do it myself? So that's one of the things I love about that. So, you know, I think there's a lot of people that, that are like that, that love to get their hands involved in something, especially oh, yeah. if they're doing a role, a job that doesn't involve that. True. Right? Sales manager, I don't do a lot of stuff with my hands other yeah, than keyboards. on the keyboard, yeah. right? Um, so it gives me an opportunity to do something a little bit different and, you know, like, you know, crawl around on the ground underneath the vehicle and, you know, wrenching on an engine is, that's fun for me, right? So what's your current project? I've got a 1973 Jeep CJ5 that was a barn find. No way. Yeah, I've had it for about three years and it's, it's really close. I've gone through the engine, rewired the entire thing, um, done a lot of work on the frame, doing a lot of sheet metal repair. There's a lot, a lot of stuff. It's been a lot of work and things that I've never done before. I've never done a wiring harness before. Did it on this one. Really? I've never done welding before. I'm doing it on this one. So you, it's like like anything. You know, you, you learn as you go. Yeah. And and the you know the opportunity to to do something may require you to learn something new. Mm-hmm. And so I'm learning stuff new all the time on that. That's awesome. So, so did you build a wiring harness from scratch? Or, well, that I one component not. alone is complicated as oh, hell. it's huge. Yeah, a lot, huge. A lot of people don't know. There are miles of wiring in modern cars, and in old cars is still a fair amount of copper wires. Lots of wires. wires. Yeah. yeah, yeah, lots of wires. So in, in my case, when I started messing around with the electrical on this thing, nothing worked. 
Nothing. No lights. Oh, no turn. Nothing worked on it from an electrical perspective. So I said, okay, this isn't good. So I started digging into the wires. It was a mess. The Somewhere previous to me owning it, it, they had spiced and cut. Oh, and, no. You know, put all kinds of stuff in there. And I was like, there's just no way. So literally, I ripped out every single wire from this Jeep. Yeah. I bought a wiring harness from Painless Wiring, Painless Performance. Mm-hmm. They build wiring harnesses. And the great thing about Painless is every wire is labeled. It tells you exactly where it goes. Nice. And they're, you know, they're all color-coded, but every wire has where it goes, where it goes to, where it starts yeah. and where it ends. And so even though I'd never done that before, I wouldn't say it's Painless, yeah. even though that's the name of the company, <laughs> but it was fairly straightforward. You know, I, it took me about two months to work through that. Oh, my gosh. And just when like, it was all done, it all worked. It was scary. That's great. Yeah. So what was the most time-consuming part of the wire harness? Just, just laying down the frame or, or installing no, it's just, it? Or? It's just running the wires to the right place and then the connections. Yeah. Right? Running to the right place is not all that difficult, but then connecting them to the right place so that they work. Yeah. Right? So a certain number of wires going to the alternator, a certain number of wires going to all the controls on the dash. I mean, it's just... All, all the lights, they yeah. all have specific wires. And, you, and, you know, running them there was, you know, with some challenges. Mm-hmm. But the biggest thing is, how do you connect it right? One of the, and this is more detail than you probably want, but one of the challenges with Jeeps, especially old Jeeps, is they have huge grounding problems. Right? Really? And you've got to ground everything correctly or your stuff's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the biggest challenges is figuring out, okay, how do I ground this correctly? And, and where do I have all the right connections for grounding? Um, but... I figured it out because the instructions were pretty darn good. And I said, it wasn't painless, but yeah. it could have been a lot worse. Right? I wasn't, I didn't have spools of wire. Yeah. Trying to figure <laughs> that out on my own. Somebody else did that and, yep. and it worked. So that was fun. And, then did you, and you said it had a V8? Yes, it's got a V8, 304 Excellent. V8. Stick shift? Uh, oh, yeah. Three yes. speed manual. Yeah. Yep. And it's the way to do a, it. It was the AMC era. So it's yeah. an AMC V8 in transmission. Yeah. And so it's pretty fun. And then what do you have to do with the engine? Was it seized up when you first got it? It was or? not. No. Oh, really? Amazingly, it was not. That's right? lucky. So <laughs> um, we went, we, you know, a friend of mine and I were working on it. We kind of went through the whole engine, mm-hmm. you know, all the plugs, pulled them all out, all the wires, pulled all that out, you know, drained, drained all the oil, all the fluids, everything mm-hmm. out of it. Um, fortunately, it wasn't seized, so that was good. We put all the stuff, all the new stuff back in, record the radiator so we had good flow for the cooling, mm-hmm. and the thing fired up. It was amazing, right? And so once you get the engine running, okay, will it move on its own is yeah. the next question. So put in the transmission, roll it down the driveway, tr- put it in reverse, yeah. roll it back up the driveway. The transmission, transmission worked? worked? Transmission had no issues. That's great. No, no issues whatsoever. Now, we've obviously, I drained the fluid and oh, replaced yeah. all that. Swap it out. No but, issues yeah. on the transmission. Transfer case, a little different story. Every mm-hmm. orifice on the transfer case was leaking. Oh, really? Right? So I had yeah. to overhaul that. I didn't do a full rebuild because mm-hmm. I opened it up, and it was really in pretty good shape. Yep. Just every seal was leaking. Oh, so and just new gaskets and new seals? Gaskets, okay. seals, yeah. We replaced all that. Put it all back in. It works fine. So what new components do you get to put into the V8, or what engine, what parts do you swap out? Um, and the engine itself, nothing. Other really? Other than the plugs and wires, right? That's Carburetor fantastic. works great. Intake's great. It's got uh, headers and dual yeah. exhaust. Nice. Um, so whoever... Whoever had it before me put a, a high-end Edelbrock intake, a high-end Edelbrock four-bell carburetor. Very nice. That worked phenomenal. They make right? good stuff. Oh, and they, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Incredibly resilient. 
and and they work great, and the thing sounds fantastic. I'm gonna have to hear that soon. Yes, that's incredible. Probably one of the best engineering feats in history, the V8. Oh, I totally I mean, agree. Like, I totally agree. One of the most real. If GM ever did something right, it was their small block V8. No it's, question. You know, darn near bulletproof. You put nitrous. Oh, nitrous would probably kill it, but you could. It all you depends. Put, yeah, I was right? going to say. It all depends. They take a fair amount of abuse. Yep, there's no question about that. <laughs> so yep. of the six, five, six cars you've been restoring, what's, what was your first one, actually? The first one was a um, 62 Chevy Impala. Oh, really? Yep, 327 V8, nice. light automatic. It was, it was a lot of fun. That's incredible. Fun. Yep. What was your favorite, or do you, do you have a favorite out of all the ones you restored over the years? Of all the ones that I've done, what I'm working on right now is by far my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think it's just, there's something about driving a Jeep. If you've never right. driven a Jeep, there's something about it. And I don't, I, it's hard to explain, yeah. but it's just something cool about driving a Jeep with a manual transmission, you know, the wind blowing around you because they're always noisy. Whether oh, yeah. you got a hard top <laughs> or soft top, they're always noisy. So you hear everything that's going on. You kind of feel the road. There's something special about driving a Jeep. Agree. I remember when I was doing car sales, you know, back in the days, you know, in the frozen tundra of Iowa, we had one of the Wranglers, and I think it was the, what was the tricked out edition? The, uh, like a the, Rubicon? Yes, or thank a you. Yes, yeah. yes. I always forget that vernacular. It was the Rubicon, yeah. and we'd take it off-roading all the time. It was a stick shift. It was so much fun. It was a very unique experience that I, I wish more people would seek or try it out, because it is, of course, it's so cliche. It's not as fast as an automatic whatever for the thousandth time it's been like that way since the 90s but it was such a unique fun experience i wish more people would be introduced to it or get into it so to say yep i totally agree because you know until you do it you don't know yeah my son bought a an old yj and that was like 92 i think Mm -hmm. and that was his first vehicle that oh really he bought yeah and that's the first jeep i'd ever really been associated with other than a kid in high school that had one that i thought man that's really cool right but then he bought this thing and it needed a bunch of work. So right. he and I worked on it, but driving it was just the first time I drove it, I'm going, okay, there's something different about this, right? Yeah. There's something really special about a Jeep. And so ever since then, I've been a Jeep guy. It's there's so much fun. Yeah. And do you plan on off-roading it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right? Why as not? A, as intended. Well, very, why not? Well, I, it's sad. A lot of these vehicles, I mean, they're engineered, you know, to go off-roading and do these magical things, but very few owners actually do it. Like kind of like track cars. Yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. And I've got another Jeep. That's oh, my right. daily driver. Oh, yeah. Right? And and that'll be on the road most of the time. Mm-hmm. I'll take it off road, but it'll be on the road most of the time. But yeah. the CJ, it's it's about messing around in the mud. Absolutely. And then what do you dream about? Like, if you think of a barn find, or you're coming across a vehicle to restore, what what is what are you really looking for? What would you love to find? Yeah, one of the things that I would love to find is a fastback Mustang from the late 60s, you know, yep. 68, 69, kind of 67 maybe. Yep. You know, those late 60s fastback Mustangs have always been my favorite cars. They look so amazing. I would love to find one of those with the you know, original 289, you know, high output, you know, all that kind of stuff, and yeah. the four speed. That would be a lot of fun. I would love to do that. They're they're worth a lot of money today. Oh yeah. So you don't find many of those in a barn anymore, but no. those that's one that I'd really love to have. You, I mean, you really gotta search for it these days. I mean, you keep, we always hear the stories on social media, like, you know, people will still find them, but it's kind of sad because as time goes by, people will find them less and less because, you know, the supply is always getting, sh- you know, smaller, not greater. Yep. yep. So it's always that, you know, what do you, the barn, there's always something in a barn somewhere. It's collecting right. dust and could be immaculate or collectible. Well, and depending on where they are in the country. Oh, yeah. Or the world. <laughs> yeah. You know, if they're sitting there long enough, there's not going to be much left to restore. No. So that's a problem. 
Especially in the Midwest with all that darn salt they put on the roads. Right. It just right. eats through. Salt and humidity. Yeah. It's hard on steel. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Have, oh. have you watched the, or have you heard of the Bugatti restoration? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So oh, yeah. for folks to, who don't amazing. know, there's an insurance uh, gentleman. I forget his profession, but he had a Bugatti, which is worth, I think, $1.2 million. And he basically crashed it into the Galveston, you know, is it ocean? Whatever. Yeah. It, yeah. Galveston ocean. Bay. Is yeah. Galveston Bay. Yeah. And which is salt water, which is yep, not every worst. Yeah, it's the worst enemy. So he crashed in the bay for insurance fraud. He said, you know, a pelican and I had to start to, you know, hit it. Yeah. Funny enough, thanks to social media and cameras, they proved there was no pelican. He just did for insurance fraud. So that car went between, you know, three or four different owners. The mechanic had it for a while. He started to restore it, but all he did was basically take it apart. And I think he got the radiators sent over to um, the global headquarters to have them, you know, flushed out and redone. But eventually someone bought it so they can actually restore it. And one of the biggest issues they're having is, you know, the wiring harness, which Volkswagen isn't going to give that away because, well, right. their parent company, for folks who don't know, right. there's so many proprietary parts on that car. I can't imagine the restoration process and logistics behind it. Yeah, and, and restoration's an interesting animal anyway, regardless yeah. of what it is, right? So most, most people that actually do the restoration, they're going to be upside down when they sell it. Yeah. They're going to put more into it to get it to a certain point, but it's only going to be worth so many dollars, right? Yeah. Every one of the restorations I've done up to this one, yeah. I've lost money. Oh, really? Absolutely, right? Because yeah. that's how they work, right? Passion. If you're doing the restoration, mm-hmm. you're not the one that's going to make the money. It's the next guy that makes the money, yeah. right? Um, and, and I go into them knowing that, mm-hmm. right? I know I'm not going to make money on it. If I break even, that would be Great. huge, right? Yeah. Huge celebration, but I haven't done that yet. Mm-hmm. Right, every one of them's been a loser, but I've en- enjoyed it so much. I don't yeah. care. It's right? a journey. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yep. Still realize it's not just a man hours, but a lot of material and a lot of you know you need a lot of tools, a lot of materials, True. and it's a lot more difficult than people think to actually properly restore a car. No question. Exactly. No question. <laughs> so yep. how do you handle the paint for the uh, paint jobs for those? Do you have a booth or to me um, to me that'd be one of the biggest hurdles in terms of infrastructure and tooling. Yeah, I don't have a paint booth that I outsource it. Oh, cool. I pay somebody else to do that part. Yeah. Right. I'm to the point now where I do most of the fabrication and and uh, body work. Oh, neat. But somebody else does the painting because I don't have the facility for it. Yeah. Right? And then you were telling me earlier, so you're actually learning how to weld for this vehicle? Learn how to weld. That's yeah, awesome. I've never done that before. So yeah. <laughs> that's been a little bit of an adventure. That's thanks to YouTube. I've been able to figure out an awful lot of stuff. Yeah. What was the hardest part of getting started with the welding and what, what kind of welding tools are you using? Cause I know there's a couple different, you know, specific types of welding you can yeah. do. Yeah. Well, again, it's, it's what type of welding am I going to do determines what kind of welder I'm going to need. Right. Yep. And so the stuff I was doing, I was able to do pretty much all of it with a MIG welder. So mm-hmm. I've got a flux core MIG welder and it's 110, So I don't have to have, you know, yep. 220 run to my garage. Um, is it, the best for everything? Absolutely not. Yeah. But for the stuff I'm doing, the lighter welding mm-hmm. on, on stuff that's not really thick, you know, the frame's a little bit thicker, but you, you do that right, mm-hmm. it'll work, right? Sheet metal is the absolute best thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the easiest to learn, right? The flux core MIG welder is pretty easy. Mm-hmm. Um, none of it's really easy, but that's easier than most of them. You know? Yeah. So that's where I started. So I've got me a, you know, pretty decent MIG welder that, uh, you know, it works. It works great. And I'm learning a ton. That's awesome. What was the most difficult thing you learned throughout your car restoration hobby? Or what was the hardest skill you had to master? Um, that's a really good question. I think probably 
the wiring piece. Really? Because that baffled me my whole life mm -hmm. right? until I got to this Jeep. And it was intimidating because you look, you look behind the dash of an old vehicle. There's yeah. a lot of wires. You look under the hood. There's a lot of wires. You go, more than you, a lot more than all, you expect. Yeah. What do all these do? Right. <laughs> so it was very intimidating. And, and until this Jeep, I would avoid that. Right. Really? I'd say, Hey, you find somebody else that can help me do that. Yeah. Um, but this one, I finally tackled that and realized that if it's done right and you think through it and you take your time, mm. it's, it's manageable. Yeah. Right? So that's probably the, been the biggest challenge and the greatest thing I've learned about any of that is the wiring is not as intimidating as it first seems. And out of curiosity, just kind of ballpark, because what does the wiring harness look like on the current Jeep? Are there, you know, hundreds of ends that you need to put in stuff or dozens or? You're talking about on a current Jeep or yeah, on, on my CJ? Oh, no, I, I know the current Jeeps are, you know, 12 miles of wire or whatever, but wire, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> it's a computer. Yeah, but yeah, it your, is. Uh, your yeah. Current, the uh, 70s uh, Jeep. On the CJ, um, yeah, there's probably, there's probably 80 to 100 ends. Still a lot. Right? Um, How do you keep track of all that as you're connecting it? Well, Every wire has got where it goes to oh, perfect. in a painless yeah. wiring harness. And yeah. there's several companies that do that. Mm -hmm. I think painless is the best. Some people would argue that. Um, but every wire has exactly where it goes. Right? So I've got, a, you know, I've got a bunch of wires running to the back of the Jeep. Mm -hmm. This one goes to the left turn signal. This one goes to the right turn signal. This mm -hmm. one goes to the fuel gauge. Right? So it's just you follow the instructions and, and read what's on the wire, and you're good. Yeah. Right? Would everyone do a kit car? No, I don't think so. No. I, I, I don't know. I never even thought about it mm -hmm. because there's, there's enough old cars running around or at least hanging out there that I could go buy something that I want to mess with. Yeah. You know, kit car just never appealed to me. Where do you usually find the project cars, your restoration cars? You just... Who knows, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, two or three of them I just found driving down the road. Oh, really? Somebody had some <laughs> old car on the side of the road going, yep. I want to sell this. I go, hmm, that's interesting. So my yep. second one, that's literally I found it on... 121 in Louisville. Really? It was just on the side of the road with a for sale sign in it. I thought, well, that's kind of cool. Really? And what kind was it? Um, a Galaxy 500. Oh. 62. Oh, cool. Galaxy 500. Yeah. yeah. Just sitting on the side of the road. I went up, you know, it had a for sale sign in it, but they didn't have a price. So I just said, yeah. you know, what, what do you got going on? Right. And we talked for a while and finally I, I made an offer they accepted and I bought it and started restoring it. That's awesome. I mean, First rule of life, if you never ask, you never know. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, you got to be a little bit bold. Exactly. Well, thanks for so much for coming on the podcast, bud. I appreciate you. It's been so much fun. Yeah, thanks for coming on, John. Thanks, Great to see you again. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Don't forget to click like, subscribe, share, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your employer, tell your enemies, tell anyone. Just all stay safe. Have a great day.